السلام عليكم ويلكم I think your mic is cutting out, Abdurrahman. I can't, I can't hear him. I don't know. Can you guys hear him? No. Okay. All right. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Welcome. Um, we have a special episode today with Dr. Joshua Rasmussen. And uh, we're going to be focusing on principally what is an explanation. Uh, may sound like a simple question, but it, it, it is really complex. But uh, before we get into it, Josh, how are you doing? I'm so good. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, I love the thought adventure intro. It's very exciting. <laughs> it I is, thought, isn't it? It's going to be great. We're going to have a thought adventure together. So <laughs> that, that's uh, exactly. compliments of our uh, brother <laughs> in the background who does all the the hidden work. My other person. Yeah. So anyway, we're we're happy to have you as a guest, Josh Abdul. I don't know if your um, mic is now working. Yeah. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, ahead. great. Awesome. All right. Sorry about that. Okay. Yeah. So, so again, so this, this is very exciting. And um, like, uh, I think everybody uh, like amongst like uh, the audience knows uh, Josh and his work. Um, it's not a secret amongst the thought adventure team that, uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of Josh Rasmussen. So this is a great privilege and I'm really happy to be uh, talking to uh, you today about this. So um we're going to get right into this, right? So so how this started, right, was with our stream with um, Alex Malpass. We had a very interesting stream with 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 Dr. Alex Malpass about, you know, just generally arguments for God. Um, and it was related to the question of, like, you know, the nature of explanation, mm -hmm. contingency arguments, PSRs and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, we, we, we contacted Josh Rasmussen to trying to review that and there was one very relevant part in there that i think maybe like out of that part where just this this discussion is branching out which is the nature of explanation as it relates to free will and that part of the discussion right like um what kind of things have explanations what's the nature of explanation mm -hmm. so um th that really is the core question that we're going to be looking at but of course it's going to be related to uh to 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 a lot of things that uh josh has been working on recently so why don't we start with this very broad question like what is explanation like what's the nature of explanation yeah that's good so to help us i brought a little bit of reality here because I always feel like having some kind of concrete example helps us to think, helps me to think. So here's something, and you might wonder what explains the existence of this thing in my hand. Now, I'm pretty sure you guys have not actually seen where this thing came from. You've probably never even seen this thing before. So for all you know, this thing just appeared like from nothing two seconds ago, or I guess two minutes ago, uh, not two seconds ago, because you did see it two seconds ago. But Two minutes ago, it just snapped onto my desk from nothing. That could be the case, but probably that's not the case. Probably there's some explanation. And what does that mean? What does it mean for there to be some explanation? Um, we'll, we'll talk about sort of why you might think this has an explanation and, and what the principle of explanation can lead us to in terms of the sort of foundations of things. But just starting off with like, what is an explanation? And one way we can sort of think of an explanation is just some kind of illumination of how or why something is the case. So for example, if, if we could say, you know what, this thing exists because some factory produced it, then we could understand, you know, how or why this thing exists. 
It exists because there were some prior states of reality that gave rise to this reality. And this principle of explanation that, that things that we see would have some explanation, that principle is very helpful in science for helping us to have more illumination, more understanding of how and why the things that we do see exist. And so you can sort of follow the explanations deeper and deeper into reality. So that's kind of a starting kind of popular notion of explanation, some kind of illumination of how or why it exists. Questions about that or objections? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, so that's that's very interesting because I've, I've seen explanation being referred to as simply something that removes mystery, right? And that's yeah, that's yeah. That, that, that seems to be true, but um, so the way you just described it, right? Uh, like, like in terms of like prior conditions, yeah. uh, do explanations have to be causal or is explanation sort of like an umbrella term that includes causal explanations, but are not just doesn't necessarily have to be causal. Yeah. So I wouldn't think that it has to be causal. And, you know, I like that short analysis, you know, just removes mystery. That's a way of illuminating how or why it is the case. And it doesn't have to be in terms of some kind of a cause. For example, it could be that there are more basic principles of mathematics that explain less basic principles of mathematics, right? So you might think that the sort of first principles of geometry provide a kind of illumination or remove a mystery of um, other statements in mathematics. We can sort of see why the other ones are true in terms of more basic ones. And so, yeah, they don't have to be causal. It's just this general idea that it illuminates it. It, it helps us to understand it, um, whether causally, by some condition, by some uh, it could be even maybe a principle in somebody's mind could explain another principle in that person's mind. Um, so that's how I would tend to think about it. Yeah, yeah. great. Um, so, I mean, taking it from there, I, th I guess we can get into the free will question, right? Because there is this, this question about, you know, uh, at least under like libertarian understandings of free will, uh, there's this tension between contrastive and non-contrastive explanations mm -hmm. and whether a you know a non-contrastive explanation counts as an explanation what's the nature of self-explanation and what implications that would have on something like a, a contingency argument right yeah. and this came up in our discussion with alex right because well if we if we say that something can like have this kind of like circular self-explanation or no explanation at all then that Short of, sort of like has implications on what PSR you're you're going to be working with because someone who is someone like like let's say Graham Alpi or or or, or, or Malpass could yeah. say that well the initial state of the universe as as, as Alpi puts it simply it doesn't have an explanation it's it's just necessary uh, and uh, the question is where do you draw the line it just becomes a bit arbitrary what kind of things have explanations and whether self explanation kind of undermines PSRs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why I like to start with a sort of concrete, clear case. And I sort of like invite you to think, do you think that this thing is an exception to the rule? Probably not. I mean, the, the, the exception of the rule that things have an explanation. Um, probably not because this thing doesn't have any kind of re relevant difference that would tell you that this thing among all the things just existed uncaused and unexplained. And so I actually had a conversation with Alex Malpaz as well. I think it was on his, his show about this topic. And, um, and we talked about principles of explanation. And one of the things that I wanted to draw out even in that conversation was that you could think of a principle of explanation as kind of at least as a defeasible rule of thumb. So 
other things being equal, expect an explanation unless you have some reason to think that the item in question is different in some way that's relevant to this general expectation. And I think this explains our ordinary reasoning as well as scientific progress. We encounter things and we don't just throw up our hands and say, I have no idea if this has an explanation, give me the proof. No, the default assumption is that it does. This thing probably does have an explanation. Now, if I have some reason to make an exception, like maybe that couldn't possibly have an explanation and I have some reason to think that, then that can change the game in that particular case. But you mentioned um, libertarian freedom and contrastive explanations. And that's a nice point because it draws our attention to a candidate exception. So like you might think that when it comes to free choice, maybe in order for me to like freely choose, okay, I'm gonna make a decision here. I'm gonna choose to raise my left hand or my right hand. Okay, I'm just making up my mind now. Okay, there it is. I just raised my left hand. Now, if that was a free choice in a libertarian sense, then I could have done otherwise. I didn't have to, under those conditions, raise this hand. I could have raised the other one. And then you might ask, well, what explains why I raised this hand rather than this other one? And you might make an argument that in order for you to have a real complete explanation of that choice, it would have to actually preclude the alternative. If it was a contrastive explanation, the reason I did this rather than that was because the state of the world prior to me doing that necessitated that I do that rather than that. And that would provide that kind of contrastive explanation. Um, but then you, but, but, but then if it was really a free choice where I really could have done otherwise, you might think there couldn't have been a contrastive explanation. And then that provides a reason to make an exception to the general rule. And then this can lead you to think, okay, well now we already have independent reasons to make an exception. Um, so maybe reality, contingent reality is also an exception. And so that's a form of objection to the cosmological argument for a kind of non-contingent explanation of contingent reality. And we'll talk about that. And then I actually have a couple of responses to that objection that we can talk about as well. Yeah, great. Um, because because um, the way this relates to like um, the, the foundation of reality, right? And yeah. how we want to say it doesn't have an explanation or that it explains itself or because uh, the way you phrase it makes a difference. Yeah. And uh, there was a bit of back and forth between me and Alex where he was like, um, well, um, necessary things simply don't have explanations. Right. And, uh, and, and I was trying to say that, well, it's, it's semantic. You, I mean, you could say that it explains itself or you could say that it doesn't have an explanation in the sense that uh, it, it doesn't require an explanation. Um, and in that sense, maybe we could take this to, uh, like a bit closer to what could qualify as fundamental, you know, in, yeah. in light of this question, because, um, uh, one example I gave in the discussion was that, like, I was saying, I mean, you can't tell me that, like, when I say grass is green, right. And that doesn't have an explanation. If I make that claim, I mean, that's not the same thing as like one plus one equals two. And that saying that doesn't have an explanation. Yeah. I think what I'm saying is that one is just self-evidently true, right? Uh, the other would seem like some kind of brute contingency that's still screaming out for an explanation. Mm -hmm. So so maybe maybe this could take us to, to, to closer to, you know, the, the foundation of reality and what yeah. qualifies as foundation. You said something about, you know, uh, eliminating from 
fundamental reality uh, aspects that basically uh, make it call out for an explanation. Yeah. Yeah. What, what would you say about that? Yeah, so it, it seems like if we have this general rule that we should expect an explanation as far as we can, you see some arbitrary piece of reality, you're going to think that it has an explanation. And so then you follow that path all the way out. And if you can arrive at some some reality that's a foundational reality, a, a reality that explains why there are even explained realities at all. And in one way, I sort of arrive at this myself in my own work is that I think uh, for various reasons that merely explain dependent things don't add up to um, something that can exist all on its own. So if reality in its totality, it exists all on its own, it's a self-sufficient reality because it's a totality, there's nothing beyond reality to explain it. It's got to have, I think, some kind of foundational layer, some foundational element that provides the ultimate explanation of everything else. Okay, but then what's its nature? And a moment ago, I mentioned free choice as a possible exception to the, the principle of explanation. Maybe free choices don't have an explanation. But here, just going back um, to, to your definition of an explanation as removing mystery, and then my account of that in terms of providing some kind of illumination, you don't have to remove all of the mystery to remove some of the mystery. So I think it's very helpful to understand that you could have a free choice that has some explanation. Even, even if it's a libertarian choice, you could have done otherwise. It could have some explanation, even if it's not a deterministic and contrastive explanation. So I think people sometimes miss this. It's like you can still have some prior condition or some explanation that illuminates it to some degree, el eliminates some mystery. Um, even if it uh, is not a completely deterministic explanation. So then this brings us back to, okay, well, what kind of reality would have no explanation? Okay, none at all. It's the ultimate, it's the foundation. What could that be? And then there I want to just kind of follow reason and just say, okay, well, it probably isn't this object. Because why? Well, because this object doesn't seem to be different in relevant ways from things that have an explanation. Its features have particular colors and shapes that themselves call for explanation. So if I'm just following this, this principle of explaining things as far as I can, then if there's this foundational reality, I'm gonna be able to shave off from my analysis of its fundamental nature, all the things that call for further explanation. And I wanna just say, the more that I thought about this, like the clearer it is that we can actually say some things about fundamental reality, that it's not fundamentally blue. Um, it's not fundamentally this object because blue and this object call for further explanation. And so I think this is a form of progress because then we can begin to uncover something that actually I think physicists are also telling us from another empirical lens that fundamental reality is not fundamentally geometric. Um, it transcends geometry. Why? Because any geometry would call for further explanation. Why that shape? Why those numbers of sides, right? It seems like it would have to be something that um, doesn't have these kind of arbitrary features that call for further explanation. It would have to be unexplained in the, in the sort of deepest way. And that's where I, I thought from my watching your exchange with Alex, um, I, I loved what you were saying. I thought the points you were making were right on. And I, and I thought that a point of progress could revolve around trying to identify like what would be a relevant difference between the kind of fundamental reality that has no further explanation. It's not enough just to say, well, it could be contingent or it could be a marble. It's like, it could be this. No, but we're not agnostic about whether it's this. 
we have good reason to expect a further explanation. So I think that does give us reason to think that fundamental reality is going to be special in a certain way that makes it exempt from the, the general rule. It's the perfect prop for this conversation as well, by the way. I, I was looking around for a problem. I was like, I have to find something. And I saw this. I thought, well, this yeah, is a very cool. unique object. Well, to it's grab a nice because, you, you know, it's kind of unique. And you can sort of see, you know, would it make a difference if this thing were bigger? Would it then mm. be able to be unexplained? And this is where I just have to say, you guys, when I thought about this and just focus in on this, like then I think it just got crystal clear. It's like, you know what? A change in size wouldn't make a difference. And then I think, what if this were the size of the whole universe? Would it then be able to magically be unexplained? What if it were the shape of the universe? What if it looked just like our universe? Then could it be unexplained? Then I think, no, that's obviously not a relevant difference. And so that's one reason I have to say that I think that our, our geometric universe um, does have some further explanation. And as I said, physicists are also telling us this from an empirical angle, that fundamental reality is not geometric. Um, so I would say there's two witnesses, the witness of reason and the witness of our best and latest science telling us that the explanation of our, our reality, the fundamental explanation is, is not fundamentally uh, a, a geometric configuration. Just out of interest, would you be able to give um, any sort of references in terms of if we wanted to read about what the what you were mentioning there? Um, yeah, so the there's there's a number of interesting things I've been reading in my work on, on consciousness. Um, one book I read by Carlo Rovelli is on quantum field theory. And it's just so interesting to hear him talk about the sort of story of scientific progress um, going from Einstein's account of space-time and then trying to understand at a more fundamental level quantum mechanics. And we have the sort of standard model of particles and then understanding particles in terms of excitations and fields. And Carlo Rovelli saying, you know what, actually our best analysis looks like it's gonna be in terms of informational structures that are prior to the geometric structures themselves. So it's actually a kind of informational uh, reality. And he leaves open how we understand information. I mean, he describes it on a sort of formal level. I think he might mention Shannon information, but on a metaphysical level, I mean, this is kind of now my territory. One of my first works was on the nature of propositions, which are the contents of thoughts, which I think are the paradigm examples of where information occurs is right in our own thoughts. And so if we have the scientists talking about the uh, reality being explained in terms of informational structures, it's not geometric, um, it's informational. Then I'm, I'm thinking about, okay, well, what kind of reality would have informational structure? Now, if, if I say it's thoughts or thought-like structures, you can still ask what explains that? And I think that would be a good question because we want sort of the deepest explanation um, of, of everything until we arrive at something that itself is special. It doesn't call for further explanation. But yeah, so I would say Carlo Rovelli would be um, somebody. Um, Donald Hoffman, his book on the case against reality was, was an eye-opening book for me to read because he summarizes a lot of the different scientific discoveries in different corners, um, from vision science to the quantum field theory, um, also just to the science, the, the cosmology, the science of the origin of the universe. And he brings together a lot of different empirical arguments, all kind of pointing to the same conclusion, which is that the sort of fundamental reality is not, it's not geometric. It's not shapes. Um, so those are yeah. a, few, a few different sources. I've heard it being described as like code, like similar yeah. to computer code or something. It's not. Yeah. 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 This is all really interesting. And um, 
I get. I have a question there about your um, because because you did talk. I think it was in your book about how reason leads to God, right? Yeah. Uh, either that or one of your talks about relevant differences, right? Yeah. And, and this question comes to mind, right? So, so something like limits, for example, because you talk about limits, right? Some, yeah. Something like limits. I mean, that might not be a relevant difference in the sense of like identifying what it is that's foundational. Yeah. But could it? be a non-relevant difference and at the same time be present in both categories as in it is not the aspect that makes the foundation necessary however it is present within the foundation do you get what i'm saying as in maybe there's so. something other than the limit that is made that that basically qualifies this foundation to be necessary but it would still be limited in one way or another mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so just to kind of think about it with the visual aid um so this thing has a sort of limited number of um, points on it. Okay, we could count them up. I haven't counted them. It's got a certain limited number of points. And so, so tell me if I'm tracking your question. So maybe let's just pretend that this is a fundamental reality. Um, and this fundamental reality has a certain limited number of points, but it's not in virtue of its limited number of points that is fundamental. Um, it just has that limited number of points. Is that kind of the idea? It's it's not like the number of points is the flag for now you know that I'm fundamental. It's just that this reality is fundamental maybe for some other reason, has nothing to do with the number of points and it has a limited number of points. Is that is that the, the question? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that, that's basically it. Yeah. I feel like that's a very profound and insightful question. Philip Goff in a conversation with me asked kind of a similar question about whether fundamental, we were talking about whether it could be the shape of a turtle. <laughs> he said, well, may, may, maybe the turtle shape isn't a flag for its fundamentality, but maybe it's being a turtle could just still be fundamental. And, and, I, and I think actually that if the shape is fundamental, then, um, then that would violate the general presumption that you should explain things as far as you can. Because he, here's why, unless it is a flag for its fundamentality, I have reason to think it has an explanation. So unless the number of vertices is a flag for that number of vertices would be fundamental. And I could, when I say flag, I mean, it, it indicates to my own mind that that number of vertices, let's say it's 26 vertices would be fundamental. It's like the number 26, like, yes, that makes sense. That would be fundamental. Unless that's happening, the very fact that um, it's, it's limited, I think, would call for further explanation and would be a reason to think that it's not fundamental. Now, let me be clear. It could be that fundamental reality has some non-fundamental attributes. Um, so it could be that fundamental reality might, in a sense, explain why it evolves into this shape, but then this shape wouldn't be the fundamental nature of fundamental reality. And I was actually just thinking before the show, I was thinking um, you guys and some people in your audience might appreciate this result because it does kind of point to a sort of simplicity in the fundamental nature of, of God, if, if fundamental reality is God. Um, because I understand that, you know, there are, there are traditions on which fundamental reality would be more complex. But I think one of the beautiful things about um, a, a tradition I think that some of you may represent is to really see that the fundamental nature of, of God would be purely simple. And that if there is any kind of diversity in, in God's attributes, um, you know, and Christians sometimes talk about diversity of, of personas that that would not be fundamental. Um, and that that would then be a later, um, let's say, explanation out of 
original reality? And that then that would be a further question. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's something we were actually going to get to um, later on. I don't know if you if you want to do it now. I'm uh, I, 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 going to bring it up later on, but this is the. Yeah, time. it sounds like a, a good segue into it. Yeah, yeah. Or, or we can come back to it, keep keep the audience itching. It's like a foreshadow. <laughs> come back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. We, we, I don't like itches. We could do that. <laughs> we could do that. Um, okay. I I just okay. So I I just want to say this now that I think that if if I understand like some of your work and and, and what you what you've said in, in in certain places correctly, I think your understanding of simplicity is a bit more nuanced than what might some people might be thinking right now. As in. Um, in the context of like, if we're talking about absolute simplicity and stuff. But anyway, we can get back to that, but that is a question that we need to get to. Yeah, I think Josh um, will be maybe a bit surprised with our position and our answer when we get to it. I look Possibly, forward to it. yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I, I guess we could talk a bit more, uh, in a bit more detail about limits, right? So, yeah. um, so, so you spoke in your work about limits being this, like, you know, cut off without explanation right yeah. that, that that it's it's uh, and it the reason limits are problematic you gave this um uh you gave three uh, general points as to why you think uh, limits should be removed from any kind of like a fundamental or theory that tries to uh, account for uh, fundamentality and uh, so I've got that down here. And I think uh, so. So um, so in terms of probability, right, you spoke of a probability and um, and how the simpler th a simpler theory wouldn't specify cutoff limits and mul multiplicities and complexity. Uh, so it just adds to the unexplained bits. And the most interesting and you said the most relevant part of this is uh, the uniformity of limits. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I thought that was uh, very interesting because the claim was very bold. I don't know if you moved on with your thinking from when, when you wrote the book, but um, it, it's not, you're, you're, you were saying that it's not just that limits, you know, uh, foundational limits are implausible. They are somewhat like impossible when you're talking about arbitrary limits. So if you could say yeah. a bit about that and, and, and the thinking behind that, and yeah. can I just yes. can I just add to that just to clarify because at times we're using the word limit, but then we're also saying arbitrary limit. So is yeah. there a difference uh, between them as well? Maybe you can tie that into the other question. Yeah, I think of arbitrary as it's like unexplained. So sometimes I'll use this language of like an arbitrary unexplained limit, um, and it's a way of sort of pointing to these sort of quantities like having four sides or being the shape of a turtle or being blue, that would, um, if, if it's fundamental, it would be arbitrary and unexplained in that sense. Um, and so, I don't know, just to kind of illustrate this, the, the uniformity principle, here's a piece of paper. And like, we could imagine that fundamental reality like looks like this. And then we could imagine that instead, fundamental reality looks like this. Now, both of these states exhibit limits of certain kinds. Um, there's sort of a limit. Uh, well, there's a limit in its mass. I haven't really changed its mass, but I've changed its orientation, its particular shape. And so we could run through some different shapes, some different configurations. And my thought is, is that it's actually possible to see by reason that these differences and limits and configuration and in shape are just not relevant to block 
the explanation principle, the call for explanation. So like if, if this calls for explanation, then this calls for explanation. And I don't claim like this is just easy to see. For many years, even deep in a graduate school, it didn't click in my mind. But there was just this time. I remember I was upstairs in our loft uh, and, I, and I was working on a paper and I was thinking about principles of explanation. In those days, I should say I was skeptical of the general principle of uh, the PSR, the principle of sufficient reason. I thought maybe some restricted version could work. Um, but then I was like thinking about, okay, well, what would be a relevant difference between an unexplained bit of reality and explained bit of reality. And I drew these pictures uh, on my computer. I had like, I opened up Microsoft Paint and I was like drawing these pictures just to help me think about it. And I drew these circles to represent like different bits of reality. And then I colored them in if they were explained. And somehow, I just have to say somehow, it's like thinking about those circles that it just clicked. I was like, oh my goodness, like these differences and shape, these differences in size, these differences in mass, those are not relevant differences to block the need for an explanation. I think experience supports this. I think science supports this. But like there's this additional intuition, this additional sense, just like right in my mind where it all of a sudden it was like absurd to me. Um, and, and I wanted just to say, there's a difference between something being metaphysically possible and something being 100% absurd in your mind. So it could be that um, it sort of seems counterintuitive for there to be some limits that are explained and some that are unexplained, but it would still be impossible. It's just, it's just that maybe, maybe you don't see the impossibility with hundred percent clarity. But I just want to say that after I've really thought about this and zoomed in on examples, it clicked in my mind and, and I've had that experience of just like certainty. I would just say, just to be honest, like just certainty, like as sure as I am that all opposite angles are equal. You know, one of these axioms, first principles of geometry. I have the same sort of level of certainty that all shapes would equally call for further explanation. There's not sort of a difference um, in, in explanation requirement from shape to shape. Yeah, that's great. And um, it, it kind of reminds me of something because um, because you're, you're basically talking about um, like, introspecting right about like because because you talk about that when you when you when, when you when you're like more like within the context of the philosophy of mind and thinking about your own like mental states and stuff like that but um but the then then there's the question of the reliability of that kind of process yeah uh but then right now when you're talking about you're talking about limits and things that have explanation and um I, I think this takes us to to a part that I find very tricky in in, in terms of like identifying uh, what it is that is fundamental, and you talk about it in your work as well, which is uh, perfection, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and and because when you talk about perfection, you're talking about value, and there's that like you know that axiological aspect that is just difficult to pin down, like at least in comparison to something like let's say power. If you say the mm -hmm. fundamental nature of reality has like power to bring about things or sustain the existence of things that seems quite obvious right and it's 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 uh it, it doesn't require that um what some people might regard as a more subjective aspect of, of, of introspection introspection that can go both ways because you're thinking about your own 
understanding of value and meaning and perfection and positive attributes versus negative attributes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So maybe this can, maybe we can go there because it's, it is related to, to the discussion about limits and we would, uh, part of foundation being limitless relates to this aspect of perfection. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, one question would be kind of what attributes can we shave off of the foundation? We can shave off the colors, shave off the shapes, right? But then the next question is, okay, well, what, what can we sort of recognize as filling in the, 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 um, the nature of the foundation? And so, yes, yeah, so I, I have this hypothesis that we can fill in the nature uh, in terms of perfection, this kind of purely positive quality that would predict the sort of positive attributes of knowledge, power, and goodness. Um, and, and the reason that I'm sort of identifying perfection as a relevant difference is that when I consider perfection, that does seem to be uh, relevantly different from explained things. It, it seems like and I can just say this for myself, like when I consider the attribute of being purely positive, like completely perfect, it seems like that does have like a flag that says this is relevantly different from explained things. In fact, it, a purely perfect thing would be able to exist necessarily on its own. It wouldn't be able to fall apart. It wouldn't be so weak as to be able to be destroyed. Um, it would span all possible worlds. Its perfection would be at the foundation of everything. It, and it wouldn't have to depend on something else and would owe its existence to something else. That that seems like what a perfect thing would be. So that's kind of motivation for having a perfect foundation. But then what you're asking me here is like, well, what about this worry that perfection is kind of in the eye of the beholder? You know, it's like if I say, well, those flowers are just so perfect. And then my daughter is like, no, those flowers aren't perfect, daddy. You know, like those bushes are perfect or whatever, you know. I was just thinking one time I, I told my daughter, um, Chloe, I was looking at her eyes, her blue eyes, and they're beautiful. And I said, your eyes are so beautiful. I love your eyes. And she's kind of blushing. She's like, and she she agreed with me that they were beautiful. And then she said, <laughs> she said, my eyes are more beautiful than your eyes, daddy. <laughs> it's mine are brown, you know, it's like, it's like, all right, all right. But somebody could disagree, you know, I don't know. So, so, so there's a kind of subjectivity here to beauty and maybe to perfection and to value. And that kind of subjectivity kind of invades this analysis of, of a fundamental reality having this kind of perfect nature, right? And there's different paths we could explore here. One path I do explore in the book is by distinguishing two kinds of value, value that would be subjective versus value that actually would be intrinsic to the thing. Like you might think people have a kind of intrinsic value. You might think that seeking truth has a kind of intrinsic value. You might think the power to, to make valuable things is itself has a kind of intrinsic value. Um, but another pathway, and, and this is what you're kind of pointing to, is from power itself. So maybe if the value argument feels too subjective, we could follow the path of, of power and we could think of, okay, well, fundamental reality has power to be a foundation of other things, has the power to produce other things. And then we can ask, well, what, how much power does it have? Well, if we say it's sort of arbitrarily limited in its power, then we get to this problem of what explains its power because arbitrary limits uh, call for further, well, limits call for further explanation. So fundamental reality is not going to have these arbitrary limits, but then that means that its power can't be arbitrarily limited, which would seem to imply a kind of supreme power or maximal power. And then on my analysis of maximal power, this power would include cognitive powers, 
um, because it seems to me like if it didn't include cognitive powers, then there would be a certain kind of arbitrary limit. Like why does it have the power to produce all these particles, but doesn't also have powers that we know about in ourselves to like produce thoughts and images. Um, so I, I just have to say like this model of reality, it seems to fit very well, not just with reason, but then also more recently, I've been reading a lot of the sort of latest physics of the nature of matter. And it seems like thinking of fundamental reality in terms of a kind of supreme power um, would kind of make sense of then why it would have the power to make these informational states required for the quantum field, if that makes sense. Um, so there's a lot there, you know, feel free to interact with any of that. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, I don't know if you guys have any questions, you can jump in, but uh, so I'm, just, I'm just trying to, yeah. Maybe I would start just by saying to, like, if you were to give a definition, a definition of perfection, like more specifically, like how, how would you define it? Yeah. So in my book, I define it in terms of having no uh, negative attributes where you can think of a negative attribute as an attribute that detracts from value. So maybe the attribute of lacking knowledge would detract from a certain value. Or um, weakness. Or... or weakness. Yeah. Ha being limited in powers. Um, so having no negative attributes um, and then having purely um, positive attributes or positive attributes, you could think of those as entailing value. So the attribute of, of being powerful or having knowledge. So perfection then would be the property of being purely positive or the property of having only value entailing fundamental properties would be sort of the way I was thinking about it in my book. If that yeah. Makes sense. So there, yeah, no, that makes yeah, sense. Go ahead. Yeah, there's there's a thought here that I have. So, so in terms of like, uh, so so in terms of perfection and fundamentality and 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 you know this foundation existing in all possible worlds, which like basically means that I mean reality couldn't be without it, right? It, in every possible way the world could have been, it must exist. And we contrast that with contingent reality, which exists but didn't have to exist in the sense that uh, reality could have been at least conceivably uh, without it and this this right. might relate to how conceivability relates to like you know modal theories and stuff like that yeah. but uh, i mean if we put th that aside right I i'm thinking about something in relation to libertarian free will and maybe this can take us a bit towards a discussion about free will and consciousness and you know the fundamentality of mental uh, you know the mental world, right? Uh, if, if 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 this contingent reality did did not have to exist, uh, this kind of takes me directly to that question in the beginning, where I'm thinking about libertarian free will, right? So I did something, and let's say I chose um, I chose a Coke versus a Pepsi, right? So so the idea here is that I chose the Coke because I chose the Coke, and well, why is it a free choice? Is because I could have done otherwise, mm -hmm. meaning that neither of those two choices are like fundamentally like necessary there's nothing in the prior state that entails it that that, that, that it really feels like that's even if even if that isn't really true but it, it really feels like that's what libertarian free will is like when you when you raised your left hand just now right it, it feels like you could have raised your right hand so there's there's nothing necessary about you raising your left hand and it, it always seems to me that when i go back just like, again, thinking about it, like fundamental reality that must have been 
and it bringing about something that didn't have to be. Mm -hmm. It just feels like me raising my left hand in the mm -hmm. sense that there is an aspect of libertarian free will that you see there uh, that that kind of explains why something that didn't have to come about did come about the way it came about. And maybe just to add this on, maybe this this can relate to uh, to certain questions about like, you know, problem the problem of other minds. And and I, I, I think about this with my friends all the time, Jake and there's Hatim as well, um, that, um, you know, how do we know other minds exist? Well, part of it would be related to this in the sense that it seems like the world operate around us operates in a very deterministic way. It seems like it's it's predictable, even if like, in principle predictable even if we don't know the explanation or something but then it seems like agents around us they just kind of break that rule that's like somebody's walking i don't know if they're going to turn right or left and and if they do it seems like there isn't anything in their like immediate surroundings that entails that choice of like turning right or left mm -hmm. and and uh, and th the fact that we can't access other minds uh, is very interesting because this is one of the ways that i can tell that something has a mind it doesn't even have to be a human it could be it could be something that looks very different like um like like i usually give this example like my son i think he's now he's three when he was maybe one and a half or something he used to get really scared of like the flying bags like plastic bags they're just being <laughs> thrown around by the wind he used to get really scared by it he's like what's moving this right and so i'm like no and then he only loses he lost that fear right when I explained to him, no, there's wind and it moves it around. So when you give him a deterministic explanation, right, that there's something that explains this, he kind of understands, okay, then it's not moving on its own, then it's not a ghost. So, I mean, that, that was a lot there, but, uh, but it, it, it kind of does take me back to that fundamental reality and how this contingent reality coming about didn't have to happen. And there's nothing more fundamental than fundamental reality to explain why it brought it about. So that just screams out free will to me. I don't yeah. know what I think about that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting as well because this the the whole thing with life is that it that there is something extremely distinct about it, and like if you get into discussions with naturalists, and like they always try to kind of like list out this list of attributes that something must be in order to be considered life. And um, but the thing is, is like no one needs that list. You recognize life very instantly when you see it and it, it doesn't have to be something you're familiar with it could be like a, a completely new creature it could be a bug it could be bacteria exactly. it could be anything but you, like when you see it you recognize it and it seems to be related to this sort of um this this self-movement that is when you yeah. see it it's it's not being acted upon in a typically deterministic fashion like mm -hmm. you see a rock roll down a hill you can sort of like put two and two together and say well, it's not moving itself down the hill you know if you see a snooker ball hit another snooker ball you you, you can see it's like there's this isn't life at play here but then you see a bug climb a hill or go up or you know something attack something or something eating and just moving about in general you you recognize in it that it has some sort of agency that it has mm -hmm. will that is it it has this ability to make choices. And then obviously you can link this back to this whole, this notion of this independent being. And if it is independent in an absolute sense, then it had like a fortiori by greater reason, it must have a will more so than anything else that you experience in life. When, when you see all these like small limited objects, 
and you're recognizing that they seem to be self-moved. Well, if there's a, if there is an independent reality and there isn't anything acting upon it or making it do mm -hmm. whatever it does, and there are effects coming from it that you know it's causing things to come into being, then how does this not scream? will or agency in that fundamental reality or in, in the in that being which is giving rise to all of these things maybe uh, you can expand on that and maybe your thoughts on that would be interesting yeah no i just love that i mean this fits very well with the idea of shaving off the arbitrary limits because if it has a fundamental power and if this power then because it's supreme and not limited will include the powers of consciousness the powers of self-determination then it's like mutually reinforcing webs of reason because now you're pointing to in our independent observations of ourselves having the power to choose and our ability to distinguish things that are alive from things that are not alive in terms of this kind of self-determination i actually was just working on um editing my chapter in my next book on consciousness and i have a section in there how to make something alive <laughs> and so it's exactly what you guys are talking about and I make this argument that for something to be alive, what actually distinguishes life from non-life in the most fundamental sense is exactly what you guys are saying. It's in terms of the kind of thing that can have a certain kind of consciousness. And in that consciousness, it can actually direct its own motions. So it's not that mindless particles are pulling the strings on its behavior, but instead it is pulling the strings. It is the first mover. And so if we have this independent reason to think that there is an original first mover of all of the rest of reality, that's going to fit very well with the idea that this original first mover is the kind of thing that can act on purpose, that mm -hmm. has the power of a mind, that can self-determine. And this is helpful because it is true that there are uh, quantum mechanical models where you have non-determinism uh, that's kind of random. You know, it's like indeterministic motion. And it's not by a free agent it's just indeterministic but what you guys are pointing to goes past that it goes deeper than that because it's actually explaining at the most fundamental level how there could be the kind of thing that could even give rise to the kinds of things that we are that we witness in our own experience free beings who can choose and so it makes sense that it would have to have the resources to produce everything we see including things that are alive and that it seems like is a very compelling reason to think that it itself um is a form of life. It's the fundamental form of life from which all other life has its explanation. Yeah, um, and and before we move on to the next point, I mean about about the quantum mechanics. But um, I um, again, I, I don't know. This is just my own thinking. But uh, so I, I think there's like obviously a difference, right, between like that, you know, epistemic access of like 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 our our just we we see that something is random or something works in a probabilistic way. And like act, grounding some kind of like real ontological non-determinacy in the sense that there is it, it it is moving itself in some kind of way, and and, and I think when we're looking at like quantum mechanics, um, uh, of course <laughs> it's way uh, out of my league to talk about this, but then I, I think there we have from within our own experience this direct first-person access to this uh, uh, you know indeterminate. A, 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 um, a phenomenon of like libertarian choice and when we look at indeterminacy in, in quantum uh, in quantum mechanics well we, we don't really know in that sense that 
I mean, what, what if it's what if it's a mind behind that that sort of moving things indeterministically? In, 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 in and the, sometimes I think of it like um, if if you're looking at uh, if there's like a curtain or something, and you've got like the double split experiment that's relevant that might be related to this, and from behind the curtain, you've got like some some somebody's throwing things in a sort of indeterminate way, and you don't see that there's any explanation right in front of you that explains the pattern in which the 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 the, the balls or whatever are coming in. It seems like well, well maybe there's an agent behind that. Uh, so I don't know if if like uh, quantum indeterminacy is sort of uh, like um, I I just don't know if it's a counterexample because like somebody like David Chalmers or as a panpsychist I don't I don't know what he'd say about this because for him well that reality is fundamentally mental it, I don't know what he, I don't know if that's related to free will but mm -hmm. uh, there is this mental aspect to everything including fundamental reality uh, including sorry the quantum reality and. And for us, I'd say that, well, everything, including, you know, this contingent world being created is this non-deterministic event that wasn't determined by a prior event or state that entails mm -hmm. it. So yeah. it seems like, you know, particles popping into existence is just going to look is going to look just like that, like the creation of new particles. So, um Sorry, that was a bit unorganized, but it's no, just, that's really uh, good. And what you're pointing to is, I think, quantum mechanics sort of in itself leaves that open. I mean, it still has to be interpreted. And so if you have yeah. independent reasons to fill in that interpretation in terms of the kinds of things that we know act, can act indeterministically, or at least have some evidence for that, um, and that would be mental beings, you know? I mean, I, I, I think about this in terms of my own consciousness. Like, I'll have dreams where somehow I know that I'm dreaming, and then in my dream... I'll do, I'll run my consciousness experiments. I'm like, Hey, I'm dreaming, you know, let's affect the dream. Let's fly. Let's create uh, imagery out into the sky. And so I'm like kind of playing with that. But what I notice is that it seems like I have powers in my dreams to actually create something, some imagery, you know? And I think about that, like in terms of a fundamental mind, having powers like we would have to create things as well, like the imagery of, of particles or whatever, you know, however you want to analyze that, or the imagery of it that comes out of informational states, as Carlo Rovelli would talk about. Um, that fits very well with the idea of a cosmic mind or a foundational mind. Yeah. Yeah, great. Um, I do that in my dreams too, by the way, so it's interesting. I, uh, awesome. Sometimes I just fly and stuff, so. I can fly, but only in a very particular way. I have to cross my legs and then I use my knees as wings. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I have to lean into it to turn. Wow. <laughs> okay, so um, all right, so so I'm not sure where to go on for, go from here, but uh, so we spoke about limits and right uniformity and explanations and um, in terms of limits, right? Because you did uh, speak in 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 one of your books about mathematical limits, right? And and how like mathematical truths are are necessary truths, right? But um, you, you you said that these kinds of because uh, uh, they're we believe they're necessary in the sense that they don't have an explanation. But you said something about them being explained by definition. So if you just very briefly touch on that, yeah. So I do think that if something's necessary, that might remove some mystery, but doesn't necessarily thereby remove all the mystery. I mean, like if it just turned out that this was necessary like this could not not be okay that might remove some mystery it might remove the question of like well why does it exist 
when it could have not existed. It's like, well, you know, it has to exist. Okay. But then I can still ask, well, why is it in fact necessary that there would be this number of vertices? It's like, I'm still wondering, uh, is there maybe some kind of deeper necessity? This goes back to the idea that you pointed to at the very beginning about having non-causal explanations, where in mathematics, you might be able to have some principles that are necessary, but then they're non-causally explained or grounded in terms of more basic principles, which ultimately might bottom out in first principles. And let me just say that kind of my most recent thinking on this, and my thinking has kind of been updated more even since writing the How Reason Can Lead to God, after just thinking more about the nature of abstract objects and kind of working through some paradoxes. And, and, um, and I've, I've come to sort of this model where even the first principles of mathematics, even while they're necessary, they themselves are reflections of mental activity um, or, or are in some ways grounded in as contents of, of thoughts. And so that actually the deepest explanation is going to, even of mathematical reality, is going to be in terms of a mental structure that in itself is going to be derived in terms of the perfection of the foundation. So it's like the foundation is perfect and therefore it's going to have all the perfections, including perfect knowledge, including the kind of perfect knowledge of this mathematical landscape anchored in its, its perfect mind. And so there's some kind of range for options within that general framework, but but that's kind of my answer to how we would explain even necessities, even limits within mathematics, if that makes sense. And do you think this relates to um, like divine conceptualism in, in any sense, like uh, uh, James Anderson and his his, yes. his uh, Lord of Non-Contradiction? Do, do, do you think it's directly related to that? It's related to that. That would be one model that would fit within my general frame, but that wouldn't be the only model that's consistent with my frame. There's There's... Kind of a range of different options. Um, it doesn't even have to be that all of it is analyzed in terms of concepts. Um, it could be that there are some basic attributes that are grounded in the particular. So I've, I've sort of actually been thinking of even the perfection of the foundation as grounded in the foundation itself, if that even makes sense. Like the particular grounds its nature. Um, I'm still kind of thinking about different ways of, of understanding that, but, but so there are, there's some different options, but yeah, you are right. That conceptualism yeah. would be one way of understanding that. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So, I mean, before we move on to that question, we wanted to ask, I just, I, I want to read this out here from, from your book, um, how reason can lead to God. Cause right now I think at this point, um, I mean, one question would, would might, might be relevant in terms of like comparing theories, this, this sort of like, um, you know, intra theoretic analysis of different theories of that, that try to address this question of fundamentality and explain what it is that's uh, 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 fundamental. I think this is a beautiful quote here from your book. I want to read it out. Maybe you could say something about it. So, um, so here you go. I quote, we can sort all theories of reality into two categories. Either the theory entails the simplest foundation consistent with reason or it entails some additional complexity. I will call theories that entail the simplest foundation trunk theories. According to a trunk theory, reality is like a tree with a single trunk. On this picture, all arbitrary limits and complexities are like leaves and branches, which have their ultimate explanation in terms of some, something deeper and more unified, like the trunk. Um, 
kind of lost the rest of that. I have to bring it up, but basically, I mean, th th this, this, and, and then you go on to explain the other theories, like the non-trunk theories, I guess. Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and you, you explain this very profoundly in terms of basically a theory that leaves you with more problems or not more problems, but like problems that are kind of similar to the exact problems we have in the starting point where we just want to explain things, but it looks like that theory leaves us with a lot of those stuff that we wanted to explain in the first yeah. place. Like if you explain yeah. this in terms of something else that looked just like this, you're exactly. just pushing the mystery deeper into reality. And so to really get the ultimate explanation, you need something different, something pure and simple. Yeah. Exactly. So there needs to be a relevant difference. And this is, I think, a good way we can compare theories. And that's kind of where our discussion ended with, with, with Alex in terms of like comparing those theories. So, so yeah. right now we, we arrive at a point where, okay, there's something necessary and there's a contingent reality, certain way PSR and works there. Now, how do we get out of this? Right. And, um, uh, Grandma P always has uh, this thing where, um, I find it very interesting where he talks, he, he, he focuses a lot on simplicity in the sense that, well, both theories explain the data, which one is simpler. Uh, and and uh, I think questions of simplicity are always very like complicated, ironically. Yeah. Because yeah. Uh, I mean, how do you assess how, how you assess that? But yeah. uh, I mean, I think it's obvious that at least in terms of like explanatory depth, right? You, you're 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 uh, you are explaining things that are basically the relevant aspects of reality that seem to be what you know, constitutes, constitutes a need for explanation. Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, and uh, in the question of simplicity, maybe, maybe you could say something about that very briefly. Like, so that question of like you, us positing this extra ontological, you know, reality that the naturalist will say, I mean, he shaves it off from his foundation. I, I've always found that like um, very strange to see that as a relevant uh, uh, um, aspect that basically counts as, uh, counts in favor of the theory because I'm thinking of it like it's just not that simple in terms of like if I'm a solipsist right yeah exists except my mental state well that's pretty simple that, that that's pretty simple but it doesn't seem to be more uh, sim simpler in a relevant way if I'm comparing it with other theories so if you have something to say about that it would be great I've, I've had the same thought yeah um, from the solipsist that's, that's a very nice point which is like, I could explain all of my experiences just in terms of a theory that I'm the only conscious being. You guys are all just images in my mind. Um, but, and that I've only existed for, let's say, 10 seconds with all my memories, right? Um, but it seems like that is cutting the explanatory chain too short. Um, because, again, go back to the first principle, expect an explanation as far as you can. And so I can keep explaining and keep explaining. And it's interesting because uh, Graham Oppie, he does work with this tool of explanatory depth. So this is a tool that he uses in his, his worldview. And just kind of as an aside, I wanted to say this kind of for the audience that we're talking about big grand scale theories of reality. And we're talking about tools for how to navigate those theories. And different people might end up at different theories based on their total considerations. So I always kind of like to think of these tools as powers in your hands. And you can ask yourself, what is the deepest ultimate explanation 
that's also the simplest that accounts for everything by my own lights. And so I think that's kind of what Ram Oppie's trying to do in building his theory. That's what I'm trying to do in building my theory. But it seems like Oppie and I have a lot of um, common ground in terms of our tools because we are looking for the deepest theory. We are also looking for the simplest theory. And I wanted just to make a comment here about the idea that the naturalist could sort of shave off something that the theist is positing. I don't really see it that way. So the way that I see it is that both the naturalist and the theist, um, if they have a fundamental reality, and Graham Oppie recognizes a kind of initial item of fundamental reality, then um, all parties have an original item. And then the question is, what is the simplest description of that? I think what Graham is going to say is that the physicists will give us a description of that reality. But the problem, though, is that the physical description of, let's say, the quantum field, if, if that's what it is, it actually leaves open some other questions about the fundamental reality. In particular, it leaves open whether this fundamental reality um, is purely perfect or is fundamentally perfect, we could say. Because, I mean, you could imagine a reality that's fundamentally perfect that gives rise to other physical attributes that the physicists are studying. And so the way that I think about it is like from Graham's perspective, he's got this big question mark that goes into the soil of his fundamental item. And the question mark is how, how shall we fill in the description? Now he could just leave it open. Like I'm not going to fill it in one way or the other. Um, but if we fill it in, then the simplest theory is going to be one that doesn't add the arbitrary complexities. And that's where I think that this sort of supreme being or perfection hypothesis fills it in in the simplest way that it could be filled in. It's not positing another entity. It's just filling in the description of the fundamental entity, whatever it is. So those are some of my thoughts. About yeah, that. yeah, that's yeah. great. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's pretty cool because while you're talking, my my mind goes to like 10 different places with everything you say. And then I'm now I'm lost on which one I should uh, say. But which I is think, the thought um, adventure, you know, it's also exactly. Very yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I think this relates like to, to like like because you could bring in other like independent reasons. Right. To, 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 yes. to sort of solidify your, your theory. And this would also relate to the fundamentality of, of, of uh, you know, the, 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 the mental yes, realm. Yes, right? that comes in too, yeah. Yeah, and the yeah. because, you know, putting simplicity aside, there's also the fact that if you just have an arbitrary cutoff, that's physical description is it. To me, that's like the solipsist view. You're just stopping yeah. the chain. Exactly. Then you have the mental, yeah, go ahead. And, and and I feel like why not like because you know I think general I was talking I don't remember who it was uh, yeah I was I was talking to to a so um, a philosophically well read uh, atheist and uh, we were talking about um, PSRs right and mm-hmm. you know whether or not we need PSRs we can justify them that's a long story I think I what I brought up with 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 uh, Alex was a sort of like epistemic a modest epistemic. A, a, a PSR and also yeah. one that where where I think Proust and Kuhn's argued that if you don't have a a priori way to know what requires explanations, you can fall into these sort of skeptical scenarios. But yeah. w- whether or not somebody is going to accept that, I think what we generally accept and we, we have to is that uh, explaining something is better than not explaining it, right? I mean, ex- explaining things is like a virtue, right? Yeah theory yeah. and and so when i'm thinking about fundamental reality and we're thinking about uh like some sort of like quantum uh foam or something that uh just indeterministically brings about stuff right 
And back again to the question of free will, which I think is very relevant. Well, I mean, we could just say that just happens, right? Which just that that's that's it. Or maybe there's an explanation. Now, maybe the explanation in terms of like whether it's contrastive or not, and whether it's a self-explanation, maybe maybe it's not going to make a difference there, but maybe it will make a difference in terms of insight. Maybe from within our own experience, we can uh, explain what that kind of thing is that happens or that is able to bring things about uh, without a necessitating prior cause. Mm-hmm. Maybe adding that bit to fundamental reality is just very reasonable because we have a direct experience of that mm-hmm. and we would be adding insight into it in the sense that you can relate to it. So removing mystery, right? So I love the, that. Yeah. yeah, so it just happens because it just happens. Well, okay, but I mean, we have something within our own experience that's just directly that very thing, us choosing just because we're choosing, right? So maybe, maybe that can relate to, to, to explanation as well. Because, it, right, removing mystery in that sense. Um, yeah, so so, so that, right. that, that, that might be helpful. Yeah. So um, so now I think maybe we could get to that question now, right? Um, Let's do it. Divine simplicity, right? I think that's, that's, that, that's the question. Right, that's <laughs> the question. So I, um, I don't know. I think uh, we've, we've, I don't know. Are you, are you, are you a divine simplicity? And that's a, do, do you, do you hold to the divine simplicity? Well, Is, it's interesting because even my work, in how reason can lead to God, it's caused me to reflect not just like on whether God exists, but sort of the nature of fundamental reality, just really thinking about that nature. And it, it's also caused me to think about different ways of characterizing simplicity. And so I would say that at this point, my working model is that there is a uh, fundamental reality whose fundamental nature is either simple or just grounded in the fundamental reality, which itself is simple. So this is hard to describe in a way because you can hardly describe fundamental reality without describing its basic features. Um, But the ground of everything, I would say, is not itself a mixture of fundamental complexity. Um, So any kind of complexity would be non-fundamental um that's how i would put it it whether in attributes or or in actions but by that and jake is going to come in here because he, he's going to have a lot to say but um so you say there's no complexity because we were talking about things like you know power goodness right um you know uh so the, these do seem to be aspects right of I, fundamental yeah. reality and yeah, so we want to say they're limitless right now it, it so in that sense, like, so is there a real distinction between these aspects? Is, is, is kind of the question. Ah, oh, man. So my latest thinking about this is sort of verging on this um, question about whether even these attributes could be sort of manifestations of the fundamental particular, if that makes sense. Um But what I do want to say is that these particular attributes are, see, with power, it doesn't seem like you can generate power just in terms of power, because that seems to be circular. So it does seem to me that the foundation of power, um, it can't be power. And so that which has the power is going to have that power 
in a way that's not arbitrarily limited. Now, maybe there's this weird way, and this is this is why I'm like this. You can maybe help me think about this, but there's this weird way in which, like, could the particular ground limits in its fundamental attributes? I mean, I wouldn't expect that. I mean, because I wouldn't expect the particular to sort of ground a limit in its power. It, it seems like that would then be arbitrary. Why would it ground that limit rather than a different limit? And so what I would expect is that the fundamental attributes of the fundamental reality aren't going to be limited attributes. Um, but then that leaves open whether there are non-fundamental attributes of the fundamental reality that is complex, if that makes but sense. But would the fundamental fundamental attribute, because I have a lot to say here, but I'm going to let yeah. Jake come in because he's, he's uh, divine simplicity is, is uh, something that, that Jake is into. But then, um, so the fundamental attributes, we could say they're unlimited, uh, but uh, I'm not sure I, I, you answered this, maybe you did, but I didn't uh, hear it. Um, are they distinct in the sense that like the, so you've got the power and then you've got the goodness or and then you've got let's say so whatever other aspects are yeah do, they are they collapsible they, they wouldn't be identical they wouldn't be identical unless you run this kind of sort of exotic trope theory where you say well maybe our understanding of them and in, in our concepts diverge it's like my understanding of knowledge is different than my understanding of power but that both of these understandings are windows into this sort of original thing that is power, is knowledge. Yeah. Um, but mm -hmm. that that isn't my working model. Okay. So I'm, I'm my working model right now, just sitting with you guys. Um, this is my hypothesis: is that these are non-identical aspects. So the fundamental power is not the same as the fundamental knowledge. Um, that's good. We'd like to hear that. Yeah. So that's my working <laughs> model, and that. And then that anything that would be, let's say, limited, um, like a, a cube or something, that would come out of some kind of activity. Um, yeah. Because it, se it seems to me like you're understanding. And the reason I said this earlier, and Jake, you're going to need to jump in whenever you can, because I'm going to keep asking questions. But because because it seems like from from what you like, like you 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 wrote about like um, pure actuality, right? It, it yeah. seems like your understanding of that is is just slightly different than you know the typical uh, uh, explanation we get from yeah exactly <laughs> the Thomas explanation of, of, of pure actuality and it seems seems like you do kind of account for it in terms of limits right um, so I, I don't know if that's right but then it, it, it seems like in that sense it wouldn't be that traditional Thomas defined simplicity can I, model right? can I address that here because I've yeah, I've yeah. updated my my vocabulary a little bit since writing that so. I think that yeah. what I really want to do is I want to think of pure actuality in terms of there being no potentiality within the fundamental nature of fundamental reality. There's no potentiality in there. That allows for potentialities to be non-fundamental. And then I do tie it to limits because then I do think as a matter of argument that if the fundamental nature of fundamental reality had limits, like the shape of a tree or a pine cone, then it would have um, potentialities because it could have a different shape. And so that's a reason that I would have to think that fundamental reality is purely actual has no potentiality in its fundamental nature and therefore no fundamental limits. And then again, that allows for non-fundamental, um, variables. Right. Yeah. Right. I'll think, you know, uh, that makes sense. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think maybe we can explain what our position is. Uh, the Although there is diversity uh, within the Islamic tradition, the one that we hold to anyway, because I don't know how familiar you are, but there's broadly speaking, you have Sunnis and Shi the Shia. Um, we're all Sunnis. And so uh, our position is pretty much I don't, I don't want to use the word dogma, but it's, it's considered orthodox to uh, reject divine simplicity. So we actually reject divine simplicity. And we believe that, um, of course, we believe in one God, but we believe that he has real attributes that are not identical to each other. Mm -hmm. um, so like what you said, not, not identical. And obviously power, knowledge um, are, are some of them. So, um, and this is actually surprising to some people who are not that familiar with the Islamic tradition, because many people think, oh, they, they reject the Trinity, so they must be like um, strict divine simplicitists. But no, um, we actually don't um, accept divine simplicity, um, primarily for, you know, textual reasons. But um, so, yeah, our conception is, of course, we believe that God is necessary being, fundamental reality, but we believe that he has multiple attributes that are not identical to each other, yeah. nor are they identical to the essence. The, the wording that's used, um, trying to translate it from Arabic, is that they subsist uh, within God's essence, so to speak. Um, so uh, that's, I, that's why I have a lot of questions about this, because on, there, there are two sides of this that's, that are really interesting. Yeah. Some people think that, and you're an expert on, I think, anyway, you're an expert on the contingency argument. Some people from our tradition, um, and maybe even some of the Muslims watching, because they know and have an understanding that we, we can't really accept um, divine simplicity, at, at least not um, under quote-unquote orthodoxy. Um, so there's a concern that when people hear us using this argument, they think that it's it's going against the tradition because, well, it leads necessarily to divine simplicity. So um, maybe before I go too far, uh, because I've seen your other um, talks and, and discussions, especially the one um, recently, um, I forget the other guy's name, but um, you mentioned him earlier, the atheist guy, where you guys were talking about uh, fundamental reality and it being mental and it, it seems obvious to me that you don't affirm divine simplicity at least not in the way that i understand it so yeah. what would you say to maybe some of the people that think and it's it there are two sides of the spectrum first it, it are those that reject divine simplicity and because uh they do that they're therefore skeptical to use the contingency argument and then also those who accept divine simplicity that think that the contingency argument necessarily entails divine simplicity. Mm -hmm. You see, there's a concern from a sort of both uh, camps, but I don't think that that's true. It doesn't seem that you do either because yeah. you're a proponent of the argument and also you don't accept divine simplicity, in, at least in the way that um, many people conceive of it. So what would your response uh, be to sort of both sides of that coin? Yeah, I'm totally with you. Yeah. So my argument from arbitrary limits and shaving those off does not take us to 
a kind of radical simplicity that collapses all the attributes. There might be other reasons that one could think about with respect to that. But as far as this argument, um, no, I mean, all it does is it shaves off the arbitrary limits, the unexplained limits. Um, but as long as the different attributes of God are grounded um, in the fundamental attributes of God, which you could say are grounded in God, that will allow for there to be a plurality of attributes, a plurality of aspects within God's nature. And again, I mean, that is my own working model um, right now. So um, that is very helpful. I'm glad you're bringing this up for your audience because I have on occasion received some emails from uh, from some Muslims who have asked me this question about whether shaving off the arbitrary limits would still allow there to be a kind of diversity of, of aspects. And absolutely it does. I mean, you can have different aspects that are rooted in the fundamental reality um, as long as you don't have arbitrary unexplained limits. So yeah, I, I think that's an important distinction to make here. Right, yeah, because we get questions um, from Muslims because uh, we try to represent the contingency argument here. And so there are some genuine concerns of, of whether or not there, there is a problem. But um, yeah, so you guys have heard it here. Josh is a, a leading expert on the contingency argument, and he, he also does not um, affirm, at least in the Thomistic sense, of, of divine simplicity. So, um, but on that, then dealing with the other side, there would be pushback from people who accept the contingency argument and divine simplicity and think that it entails it. Now, I know that you addressed it, but there are some other questions um, related to that, one of which is, okay, we have the fundamental layer of reality and um, within God, I don't know whether you want to call it the essence of God or I don't know what the best term would be to use in that case. Um, but then you have also these attributes that, for example, knowledge, power, and goodness, uh, uh, just using the three that you've given, that are not identical to the essence and they're not identical to each other, right? And so the question is, if God is basically uh, his essence plus his attributes, for, mm -hmm. for lack of better way of expressing it, mm -hmm. then wouldn't this be a conflict with the uh, contingency argument in the sense that um, he's dependent upon his attributes? So there's a dependency relationship between God and his attributes uh, by the fact that he's composite in some sense. He depends on his attributes. And so would that be, how would you resolve that problem, I guess? If there's a composite where the um, the parts are prior to the whole, I mean, maybe one could think that the whole is somehow prior to the parts. Um, I, I mean, I do want to just affirm that even in my own thinking, I'm, I'm trying to kind of leave open some different models, including even yeah. how to interpret some of the Thomistic models, those are things I'm, I'm also still exploring. Um, but as far as just this cosmological argument, it certainly leaves that open. And I would say it even does leave open the idea that you could have some kind of composite as long as the whole is explanatorily prior to its parts. Um, because otherwise we're back to the problem of arbitrarily limited numbers of parts, you know, like why mm -hmm. those numbers? Why, mm -hmm. why, why would those be all the pieces, you know, of God, if they're fundamental, it seems like they have to be anchored more deeply. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's how I would think about that. Yeah. So then you would just say that um, if somebody wanted to go that route, 
that the the whole would be prior to the part, so to speak. And this isn't yeah. language that we necessarily use, but um, the whole would be uh, prior to the parts in some sense. And that maybe um, the proponent of divine simplicity who's sort of maybe driving this critique is working with an assumption, uh, a, a sort of myriological assumption about the nature of parts, the nature uh, between uh, a whole and its parts, et cetera, that um, people like us or others who want to explore this type of complexity, so to speak, are somewhat free to reject. And there's, you know, at least room for discussion on that. Is that how you would see it? Yeah, I like, I like how you put that. Yeah. Okay. If I understand okay. what you're saying, yeah. yeah. Okay. And um, so let's see, what else can we talk about with divine simplicity? Okay. So another issue is, um, you know, in, in what's called classical theism, a lot of times the certain attributes are linked together, like God's simplicity, um, his um, timelessness, his changelessness. And so on a, on a model in which God changes or has genuine succession in his life over moments of time, if you reject uh, timelessness, how would you explain um, how the necessary being uh, could still be the necessary being and yet he's different over time? Does that make sense? I think so. So um, my working model, and, and you can come back on this right now, is um, that time depends on change. So time involves earlier and later than relations yeah. between states of affairs, and that these are relations themselves are grounded in changing systems. And so I'm kind of thinking that like, in a possible world where God doesn't create anything, if there were such a possible world, um, there would be no change and therefore no time. And so in that sense, um, God wouldn't be like in his essence, a temporal being, but would be able to exist in a world without time. But then in a world where there is change, my current model, on my current model, um, God is related to the changing things. So like God is present right now with us. And in that sense, God would be in time. I'm not constrained by time, but operating within time as something that is part of a changing world or the foundation of a changing world. So come back to me, maybe clarify your question. I'm not sure. If yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I'm saying and on under that model where um, God can, can change with respect, at least relationally to creation. And you can even, I mean, depending on how you want to construe it, even his actions that maybe he, performs different actions at different times right yeah. so in that sense he's changing or uh we could even go to his knowledge of tense facts if we want to go over there too so in in, in those uh situations because you brought up like possible worlds there's a possible world even uh from a muslim conception i think that we, we agree on this um in which god didn't create anything in other words uh Creation was a free act of his. He was not compelled to create. He could have chosen not to create. And so I guess the question is, if uh, God is the necessary being, and so he exists in each possible world, but yet he's not identical in each possible world, mm -hmm. and there's one in which he's changeless, let's say, and then there's one in the actual world in which he changes in some sense, at least 
with respect to his actions, how, how would you account for um, him still being necessary or the fundamental layer of reality? In other words, what are you yeah. identifying yeah. as the necess- necessary being? Because if we say, okay, God without creation is necessary mm-hmm. and fundamental, and then God plus creation is necessary and fundamental, they're not identical, right? So I don't know if yeah. that's making sense. I think I, I get that. Yeah. I mean, there are different models here too, but kind of the way that I think about it is there's a sense in which the change in God is sort of extrinsic, maybe even from mm-hmm. our perspective. Um, I do think of it in terms of real relations um, yeah. to God. And, and even there, there's different ways of analyzing that. I, I think a lot of times maybe when cultures divide, sometimes there can be vocabulary differences that actually mask potential places of, of unity um, that go beyond the vocabulary differences. So I want to even be careful here in how I use my language. But mm. but the way that I think about it is that the sort of necessary reality um, includes the knowledge, power, and goodness yeah. that's fundamentally unchanging. But there can still be extrinsic relations of knowing us knowing what we're talking about now or seeing us in this moment that changes mm-hmm. from time to time and world to world so that would be kind of extrinsic change whereas the mm-hmm. intrinsic nature would be necessary i would think mm-hmm. um but even in that sense like so uh, <laughs> if we think of, of god's knowledge and he has knowledge of say tensed facts or mm-hmm things that are changing for example god knows that we're talking right now um he knows that we hopefully will be talking in five minutes from now Mm -hmm. but he doesn't know that right now in other words um his knowledge of those things um change at least with respect to their tense in some way if if he has knowledge in a tensed fashion of course you can think that his knowledge is simple or uh, just has this intuitive grasp and he doesn't experience, um, you know, knowledge in that sort of way. But if he were to, um, then it, it would seem that that attribute of knowledge would be um, changing in some sense. Does that make sense? I think that that's right. I, w- I would think of that as involving a relation of, of awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, so like right now I'm aware of, I guess, my hand or at least a visual experience of my hand, something like this, <laughs> yeah. whatever is out there. And I would think that whatever is there, um, God would be able to just be aware of it in sort of a single act of awareness. Um, but then since the contents of the awareness are changing, there is that sense in which God is changing. Um, mm-hmm. And and I know there are debates about whether we're going to analyze this as intrinsic to God or extrinsic. Is God's knowledge intrinsic to him, extrinsic? But I do think there is a kind of relation of awareness and mm-hmm. that the contents of awareness are the things that are changing, not the, let's say, awareness itself. The awareness mm-hmm. is almost like the field in which the contents swim and move and have their being. And then the field is just there. Yeah. So that's kind of where I'm at on that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I would tend to think that it's intrinsic because I guess I don't know what... <laughs> extrinsic knowledge would really be um in the sense that i think it's partially being explained or described by god and also um the things that he's related to but anyway well in that um, sense yeah yeah. you could say it's 
it's intrinsic to God to have that awareness. It's, yeah. 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 Um, I mean, can, can you say it's in, in sorry, yeah, go ahead. In, 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 intrinsic and non-essential in the sense that, um, yeah, yeah, I think that's fine. so you do have the essential right attributes that make God, God, but there could be an intrinsic, something that's intrinsic and not essential, such as like his like contingent knowledge or, you know, act of creation. I, I, so I almost kind of wonder if it's like, there's this intrinsic act of awareness, like this sort of field of awareness. And then what's extrinsic would be the contents of that awareness. Those things are changing. So there's this kind of weird way in which the in intrinsic and extrinsic come together in God's knowledge. And so maybe part of the way that dialectical partners can make progress on, on this mm -hmm. question is, is just sort of clarifying the intrinsic aspect and the extrinsic aspect and just getting those terms very clear. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm with what, what you're saying. Yeah. And so, I mean, if we move on from knowledge, I, I probably just have like one more question on this. Um, we were talking about before God's actions and the fact that he has power and we would also say he has will. He, he exercises that power uh, and performs actions. He's a, he's a genuine agent. And um, so the we also mentioned before that there's a possible world in which God doesn't create anything. Right. And so if that's the case his act of creation is a contingent act is it not in that case yeah yeah okay so if it, if his act is contingent and that's something that is ascribed to him and how do we explain how the necessary being could have contingent properties or attributes mm -hmm. um well so i i like the analysis earlier that um god's will mm -hmm. could make the difference between the necessary and the contingent um you know god decides to make a world because he loves mm -hmm. us you know he loves he finds us a very interesting world mm -hmm. so that might at least be a part of an explanation there yeah what i'm saying is if if we're talking about the necessary being um is it problematic to say that the necessary being is is partly necessary and partly contingent so I wouldn't use the, that that language. I'm not thinking of the necessary being as like having parts where one part is yeah. necessary and the other is contingent. I'm thinking of it more like maybe having states. Um, I, I'm actually kind of working through these distinctions in the current book I'm writing because I'm talking about the nature of persons. So I make this distinction between parts, properties, states. You know, this is like analytical surgery here. And once yeah. we get that all very clear, then what I would want to say here, and, and I think maybe this is consistent with with your thought, is that um, the fundamental reality could have some states that are necessary, like its independent nature, but then it could have other states that are um, contingent, like the state of knowing what's going on, for example. Mm -hmm. and, and or even um, performing actions, like what I was saying, but in that yeah, state. Yeah, say, yeah, performing an action or even being in our world, like the state of yeah. being in a non empty world would be an example. Mm -hmm. Yes. But then. In that state, if that state is contingent, yeah. then the question is, if that state is contingent, how does that affect God's uh, modal status? And in other words, how would it not make God then contingent, I guess is the question. So you could have a necessarily existing thing that has attributes or states that are not, uh, let's say, essential to it. Um, you know, that that's how I would think about it. Like, Right now, I exist, and I'm not necessarily existing, as far as I know. 
Um, mm. But I exist and I can change my states. See, I'm like changing my states. So like maybe God mm. could do the same thing. You know, he could have a kind of necessary existence and that way he could still change in relation to what's going on. Um, mm -hmm. Can I, can I say, cause maybe there's something that you, um, I think you've, you've, uh, you've said before that might relate to this and that when you're talking about limits, when you say that, you know, there could be no arbitrary limits in the foundation. Well, because, well, a limit needs to be explained and well, the foundation is, <laughs> you can't explain it, but then the, the necessary foundation or the necessary being could have not like limits that are non-foundational or non-essential to this being. So that, that might that be related to the contingent versus non-contingent attribute, right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then one other question is, I, I was thinking, and um, I noticed that, of course, your 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 YouTube channel and uh, your name is Worldview Design. So uh, as a metaphysician, right, you try to see how the different views that you have, how they mesh with each other. Yeah. So um, this is just something I was thinking about because um, I've been reading your your book on defending uh, the correspondence theory of truth. And um, and so it's something that I'm interested in, as well as divine simplicity. So I just want to get your your thoughts on this. When we talked earlier about um, the 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 sort of supreme nature of the of fundamental reality and it has these three attributes or properties at least of knowledge power and goodness mm -hmm. do you see any relation between that and the correspondence theory of truth and how it relates to divine simplicity if you don't get what i mean by that maybe i'll explain it a bit more in the sense that um when we talk about knowledge power and goodness right and we, we say that the the fundamental layer of reality uh has them how does that relate to the, the question of correspondence theory of truth in the sense that sh shouldn't it be that th there's a real correspondence yeah. between those attributes and what we're actually saying such that it, it provides evidence, um, if I could say it in a polite way, that it would provide evidence against uh, divine simplicity? Yeah, and, and it, yeah, very much. And, and to put it, in a positive way, provides evidence for a view out of your your tradition, um, and also yeah. view that that I hold as well, which is that there can be diversity of attributes within God. And mm -hmm. um, I like what you're saying here because it's connected to the correspondence theory. So the idea mm -hmm. is that uh, maybe we can say of God that God is powerful, and then we can say of God that God has knowledge, and then these are two different things that we're saying. But on the correspondence theory of truth, those things are true only if they correspond to a reality. Mm. And so then that points to a reality of power and a reality of knowledge. And those are different mm. realities. Now, let me, let me just say, let me just add this just for the sake of kind of getting all the models on the table. Yeah. One thing that I have been wondering about is if it's possible that you could have a common core that is a, a truth maker for... Mm different um attributions um mm -hmm. so like for example I mean, we could say that that lois lane and this is fictional right but we could just imagine it's like so in the fictional world of of superman lois lane loves superman and then you have lois lane loves clark kent mm -hmm. um, and you might think that there's actually one basic 
fact out there in the world that makes both of those true? Now, maybe not. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's where you could debate that. But I have kind of wondered if, if like, could power talk be like our window into fundamental reality through the concept of power? And then knowledge talk be a window into the same fundamental reality through the window of our knowledge concept. Um, mm -hmm. that, that's kind of like just this idea that I've, I've been thinking about. But, but putting that to the side, I do think that the correspondence theory does point at least to some reality that these propositions correspond to. Mm -hmm. And that would provide some kind of evidence, I think, for, for a diversity of, of attributes anchored in, in one being. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, in the sense that um, they would be um, truth makers um, for um, what, what is being described. Now, that's certainly right. I mean, s s some people in the tradition hold to that, that God's essence, um, that God is basically knowing um, through his essence. He has power through his essence, but not through this attribute, which is knowledge or power, etc. Yeah. Um, but. I, I think the question is, uh, going back to the, the, the Superman and Clark Kent analogy, that seems to be due to um, epistemic limitations in that maybe you're, you don't know that Superman is actually Clark Kent. And so we would have to then analyze these concepts like power, knowledge, um, goodness, et cetera, and see, well, is it really the same type of thing? Is it really analogous? Are we... Does it seem like we're missing something that, um, or are these things really different? Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think that is the question. I think that's why there is kind of this debate over whether our concepts of knowledge, power, and goodness are kind of just analogies of the original reality, or whether mm -hmm. they're sort of univocal terms um, mm -hmm. that we understand to actually apply to the original reality. Now, my own view has been that just just what you're describing that these are really distinct attributes mm -hmm. um but you know I, i'm just sort of thinking about all all the possible models we could think about um yeah. so i think there are some options still on the table here yeah yeah no definitely yeah. i just um because i i've been reading your book on correspondence theory and i'm just i like to see how these different views that we hold how we, they fit together yeah, you know absolutely. what's the best way of trying to conceive of it and i i haven't seen you speak about it too much so yeah. i just wanted to run that idea off of you i'm sure you've already thought about how that uh, relates to um god and his attributes etc but just wanted to run that thought by you guys yeah. if you guys have anything you want to come in here i know we're uh we've been going for uh quite a while now oh this is this is so good in fact i, I hope we can even just touch ever so briefly if you want to even on on how the trinity might fit in because I'm kind of a, a build a, a bridge builder, you know, and I like to see how different cultures can maybe come closer together and maybe see a common ground, maybe a common reality and maybe make some progress together. Mm. And so I was even thinking that it's kind of cool that in your, in your tradition, you'll recognize a kind of diversity of aspects within mm -hmm. the fundamental reality. And as you know, I mean, there are different ways of understanding the idea that maybe God could have a kind of diversity of personas and one kind of way of thinking about it that I don't know. I was just, I just kind of want to float this and see what you guys think um, it, it is in terms of kind of a metaphor where you think about God as uh, source or fundamental 
reality. That could be like God the Father or something. But but you don't have to use that language, you know. But that could be sort of like one way of thinking of God, like as source or as fundamental. And then, then you could think of God through the lens of different aspects of God. Like so maybe like God as um, merciful, you know, Allah mm -hmm. as merciful. And that could be like, you could think of that as another sort of expression of God. And then you could have like another one, which is like maybe some kind of um, sort of present or God as spirit or, or some kind of present reality. There's different ways this could go. And th this could be maybe a way of sort of thinking of a sort of even triune conception of God within your own tradition that would be consistent with your own tradition. Um, and then maybe it could even be consistent with the Christian tradition as well, a certain version of the Christian tradition, where, the, where it looked like the, these were worlds apart and we had to like fight over this. There's actually a way of analyzing these things <laughs> to get to their essences or may, maybe there's a way of, of even getting some unity here. So that, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I, I just thought I'd share that. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I think it, it, it depends on how we um, define the persons, right? Because, um, and this is something that uh, I, I try to point out to, to, to Muslims and, and Christians as well, that at least, and I have to be fair, there is complexity, uh, no pun intended, in the... Islamic tradition, there are uh, diverse views, but the broad mainstream of, of Sunni orthodoxy is um, not to accept divine simplicity, right? So we, we accept these real attributes. So the problem isn't necessarily um, that the Trinity leads to God not being utterly simple. Mm -hmm. That's not what the issue is. The, the issue is, for example, when we say... Um, that the Father is God and the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God. And there's this semantical point of what does it mean? What does is God mean? Does it mean that they're actually identical to God? Uh, and if so, if, if the Father is identical to God and the Son is identical to God, well, then it would follow by necessity that they're identical to each other, which is yep. modalism, which is problematic. So you want to avoid that. So it's going to be something like uh, an is of predication in which uh, divinity is being um, ascribed to uh, the subject or the person, in this case, the, the, the father, son and spirit. The, the only issue I see is that I don't know exactly how that would map on to the Islamic conception of God with multiple attributes, because we wouldn't we wouldn't say like, uh, for example, all. Um, mercy is God in, in, in that sense. You know what I mean? We would just say um, God is merciful and yeah. that's, a, that's, a, that's a predicate or like a property that's being ascribed to the subject. But I don't know if it, it matches on the same way with a person because the way that I see as a person, a person seems to be the subject in which the properties are then ascribed to. In other words, yeah. um, in our view... Yeah, in, other, in our view, it seems like, and we don't use the term person, but if we did, it would be one person with multiple attributes predicated of that person. Whereas with the Trinity, it seems like there are three persons with multiple attributes each ascribed to them. Um, so I, I guess it would have to dig down into how exactly we're going to define and understand person and see is there an analogy to be made between the persons and the attributes? Yeah, um, that, that's yeah. it. Yeah. And I was actually thinking of, of even a third model, um, mm. 
which is one that some Christian philosophers have been floating in, in the literature where you have the sort of, now in my language, a kind of original self or subject of consciousness that um, shows up as different things. So it's mm -hmm. self as source, self as um, merciful, self as mm -hmm. spirit. And, yeah. you know, it, there's a question about whether, okay, is this modalism? And, and some yeah. theologians I've asked have said that, well, it's actually not technically because it has to do with whether the, it has to do with certain technical distinctions that now I'm looking at the history books and I'm trying to figure out, okay, what, what's within the range of the tradition? Yeah, I think and Rob well, Coons likes that type of model. He, he's got yeah. a model like that. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, Mike Ray has something like this. I also have a friend who's published something similar to this uh, that early. Yeah, I think me. what they try to say is that um, the heresy of modalism seemed to be more involved with that. The persons are, uh, basically non-essential or contingent because they would then be based on creation and God's um, sort of action and creation. But on this other conception, it's, it's not, it's not that it's meant to say that this is basically essential or necessary to God in some way, even apart from creation, he has these um, sort of three aspects, I guess. You yes. Could say. Yes. So that's, that's what they try to say. And this... I, I, I'm not a Christian, so I don't know if, and I'm definitely not an expert in terms yeah. of um, uh, whether or not this is orthodox or not. That's not my job. But, um, yeah, I, I, I am aware of this model and, and that's something to take a look at. Um, the and, and I say, I'm, I'm not an expert, you know, on this either. Yeah. It's just it is interesting because they're in the Latin school. There mm -hmm. is more of a emphasis on the unity. Yeah. Uh, and even that term person, I looked it up. It was like the Latin was like face or persona was like face, like three faces of God. Yeah. This, this kind of inspired in my own mind, this possible model, which whether it's within the tradition or not, I'm, yeah. I'm just wondering, well, what's the truth, right? <laughs> what is yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> here we yeah. are in the thought adventure together <laughs> trying to yeah. understand the truth, you know, and I'm thinking yeah. maybe the truth is somewhere I don't know, maybe, maybe sort of in between the traditions or maybe it shows up differently in the, in the traditions. And, and so, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I, I didn't mean to, to cut you off there. No, but. no, no, no. That's fine. The, the only thing I was going to say, maybe um, for you to think about, not that you might have, you might've already thought of it anyway, but the, how it relates to the biblical portrayal of the, the relationship between the father, son and Holy spirit in the, especially in the new Testament, uh, because this is what, um, uh, Dale Tuggy, who uh, is a friend of mine, I've had him on my channel. Um, he he likes to divide. If you if you look at his article on uh, Stanford Encyclopedia, he likes to divide the Trinity models between what he calls one self models and three self models. There you go. And yeah. and this this model seems to be more of a one self model, yeah. Yeah. right? Um, but the issue that he brings up, and which I think is something to consider is how does it relate to the New Testament? Because we see the relationship between the Father and the Son, and at least upon the apparent analysis, it seems like we're dealing with two selves. The the, the Holy Spirit is another question because it's not as sort of the main figure, right? But um, at least with the Father and the Son, it seems to me that we have two selves um, in the New Testament. So I think that is a potential issue. Um, 
with that model. And then there are other things which um, actually William Hasker, uh, who, who I love, by the way, he's been going back and forth um, with Scott Williams on, on, on this issue. And one of the problems is uh, this idea of uh, what's is basically called the problem of um, uh, indexicals. It's this idea, well, the father, for example, knows the proposition, I am the father, and the son knows I am the son, and both of them cannot know that in the reverse. Otherwise, it, it would be uh, just false, right? The, the son can't know the proposition, I am the father. And so then the question is, how can you genuinely have sort of oneself if Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have the, have um, different thoughts or different mental states? And uh, I mean, we can do this with, with several things. For example, the, in, at least in classical Trinitarianism, the Father generates the Son or the, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Well, the Father knows I begot the son, right? And that I am unbegotten and the son knows I am begotten. I'm not unbegotten. And so anyway, there's this interesting question of uh, indexicals or these uh, self-referential propositions and how each one of the persons can know them differently. And I think it, it, it does pose a, um, a problem or at least it's, it's an objection to this sort of more unitive or oneself uh, theory and and Hasker and Williams have been going back and forth. They've got like three or four papers going back and forth. Um, so yeah, it's, it's I'm just bringing it up because yeah, it's something sure. to consider. Yeah, yeah, and and I think a lot of it even does come back to vocabulary, right? Because right, even as I'm thinking about it here, I'm just thinking about your own model and sort of how it could be characterized in a way that maybe could lend itself to even a broader appeal, even beyond your, your tradition, um, mm -hmm. even putting aside other interpretive um, questions, which are very important. You point to a lot of very important mm -hmm. issues for sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've got yeah. two questions. Go ahead, go ahead so, Yusuf, yeah. So firstly, I wanted to ask, uh, do you have a copy of the Quran? Because uh, I would like to send you one if you don't have one. Uh, I, th I think I do. Um, <laughs> I'd have to look around. I know I used to. Okay, well, I'll send you a new one then, because there's um there's a really nice translation called the Clear Quran uh, by uh, Dr. Mustafa uh, Khatab, and uh, I think it'd be be interesting. And the other thing I wanted to ask as well. So earlier when we were talking about perfection, mm -hmm. and you you mentioned with regards to perfection in particular that it would be the absence of particular defects, and so just I guess relating it to like obviously you, you brought. The, the question of the Trinity in there towards mm -hmm. the end. So just sort of linking these two aspects. Um, so how then would you deal with this notion of perfection if you're bringing this notion of like the, a human Jesus into the picture where he's characterized as having certain imperfections? Uh -huh. Yeah. So th this would go back to the idea that any kind of departures from the sort of original perfection would themselves be explanatorily posterior. So the idea would be like, maybe God could enter into a certain form or, or display himself in a certain way, but that form or display wouldn't be fundamental. Um, so it wouldn't have to be without limitation or constraint. 
Um, so that that's how I would think about that in general. I mean, I would say that wholly apart from the specific application to thinking about characters and history. I mean, it applies um, to your question there, but that would be my general answer that any, any kind of manifestation or revelation or experience of limitation would be explanatorily posterior to the fundamental reality. It's not essential. So, yeah, just so, yeah. Yeah. So just so we could take it back to, topic right i mean this was great really and honestly i can see i could see you too jake and and josh i could see you guys having like a really good discussion just from that exchange it, it looked pretty good we weren't planning on going anywhere near the trinity but, uh, I, that's but me. Was, I, I brought it up that was yeah, yeah. like might as well it's the thought adventure let's do this so. yeah, <laughs> it was, yeah yeah it was related and, and it was a really nice exchange so 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 thank you for that but um trying to bring it back to to um to what we were talking about um uh just maybe a final, put, uh, no, final thoughts here yeah yeah mm-hmm. just to know so the, how how long have you got uh josh so I, I, obviously we don't want to keep you longer eight, yeah than we're, eight, we're getting close seven to the or eight minutes so, yeah yeah, that, that's about it. Yeah, that'll be good. Yeah. yeah. Did you yeah. want to say something, Yusuf? No, no, I was just oh. checking to make sure because yeah. uh, yeah, yeah, I, I no, don't want to keep him gonna, longer than, than he said he we're gonna, would. We're, yeah, yeah, we're going to wrap it up. Um, if yeah. I could squeeze in one more question, not about the Trinity, actually related to the um, discussion we had with Malpass. Uh, okay. It's something that I was thinking about because, and it sort of ties back into everything we were talking about, uh, principle of explanation and all this kind of stuff. And at least least from my conception of how the conversation went, it seemed to me that he was dealing with a different um, sort of modal theory. He was using a type of Aristotelian understanding in which, you know, the things that are possible branch off from the actual world. And I saw your exchange with him. I've watched so many of your guys' videos, so I don't know which one it was. And you've talked to him several times, but there was a part in the conversation where I think you guys were discussing, um, I think you guys were discussing the Grim Reaper paradox. Yeah, that's it. And yeah. so there was a point in the conversation where this came up, and it also came up in our discussion um, because if we're, if we're coming from radical different starting points about our theory of modality, then there's probably going to get different results, right? And maybe not necessarily all the time, but mm-hmm. um, so there was a part where this happened in our conversation. I saw it. It was very interesting in your conversation as well. And it came to this example of like imagining the universe and it was a particular color, like it was, it was blue or red or something. And then you were basically saying, uh, and I'm recalling this from memory, so it's not perfect. Right. But um, you're basically saying, well, it could have been red. Right. And, and Alex was like, well, no, not necessarily, not necessarily based on my view, because if it was always blue, then it, it couldn't have been red in that sense, mm-hmm. right? So um, I guess what I'm saying is uh, his, his understanding of how possibility works in that sense, I think specifically when we're investigating this idea of causal finitism, right, and the Grim Reaper paradox, that his modal theory or the Aristotelian theory of modality, it, I think in a way handicaps the person because it's very, 
empirical in a way, right? It's mm. almost as if you need to see uh, what is actually the state of affairs to say whether or not something is possible. Mm -hmm. And I think it handicaps us when we're thinking about situations in which we don't have direct access to them, or in this particular situation, a very unique state of affairs where we're trying to go back into history and saying, wait, is this possible? Does the causal chain, does it go back infinitely, right? Is, do we have an effect that can have an infinite amount of prior causes? And I think on the Aristotelian theory is very difficult to really answer or investigate that question because it's almost like going back with the, the universe being blue or red. Well, if I didn't see it and I don't know whether or not, well, well, that's the whole question we're investigating whether or not it is possible to begin with. So it seems like you need something else uh, besides that to, to help you to try to investigate some of those type of questions. I know it's totally different than the Trinity and what we were talking about before, but I was just wondering your yeah. thoughts on that. Cause when I was watching you guys um, and, and also it came up in our discussion, I'm like, well, dude, of course it could have been red or blue. Like, That's what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. So, um, <laughs> but your moral theory know. will affect your analysis of that yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. I like how you put that. Um, what I think a helpful distinction is between modal epistemology, which is like, how do you know what's possible? And then modal ontology. And so there's a way in which you can have this kind of Aristotelian branching modality view where you have an original reality and all possibilities are ones that are causally, uh, are within the causal potential of the original reality through some chain. That would be a kind of modal metaphysics, yeah. um, which, which I'm actually very sympathetic with that view. Yeah. But then there's this additional question, which is your modal epistemology. Like, how do you know what's possible? And I like what you said that if you have a kind of modal empiricism where you yeah. have to see almost like what's actual before you can see what's possible. And yeah. I understand there are in, empirical modal, uh, empiricist theories that allow for you to not have to see that's actual first, but still mm. it's very much grounded in um, observations. You can't just sort of be conceiving mm -hmm. in your mind what's possible. And so, so first thing, I, I think it's just helpful to separate the metaphysics from the epistemology. Yeah. And then when it comes to um, the epistemology, in my own view, I do think that you can see possibilities through a reasoning faculty. Mm -hmm. Like I don't think you have to use your eyeballs to see that there, it, it is really actually possible for there to have been 10 to the billion particles, mm -hmm. uh, 10 to the billion to the billion to the billion particles. Any of those are, are really possible. Um, but, but for the sake of modesty, I can also just say that let's distinguish then between different kinds of possibility. And mm -hmm. at least if we're talking about logical possibility, which would be logical consistency or consistency with the a priori truths, <laughs> then I think that certainly your conceivability is going to be relevant. And all of this brings us back to our opening question about explanation. What is the ultimate explanation? Because yeah, yeah. Let me just say my, my sort of favorite uh, latest argument for a necessarily existing fundamental and even supreme reality is from just the possibility of an explanation. So at the end of How Reason Can Lead to God, I have this book at the, uh, this article at the end, I, I call it the secret argument. And the secret argument is an argument from possible explanations. And you don't need a kind of 
robust uh, empirical metaphysical possibility, all you need is a mere logical consistency to run the argument. Um, this is actually the point that I was making in that exchange with Alex on, on exactly. Her I, I want to call all back you need on that is the logical it. possibility yeah. because you can run the whole argument in terms of reason um, to deduce your your conclusion that unless there's a necessary foundation, um, you're going to be able to do de to deduce a logical impossibility from the principle mm -hmm. that every limited contingent reality possibly has a further explanation. Mm -hmm. And so that's yeah. kind of a cool, I think, uh, point of progress on these arguments. Yeah. And, and Josh, the thing is, he, he's doing it in that conversation and also in ours as well. I think it genuinely is his view. He's skeptical of the distinction between uh, logical and metaphysical possibility, right? Um, so Alex is kind of skeptical between that difference. But or if it's application, I think to the to the case. Yeah, yeah, That's but the, the the problem was for me is that if you if you take um, sort of logical possibility and necessity having to deal with what is a priori, as you said, that can just be known like that, then if you if you cannot show, for example, that um, the rejection of it leads to contradiction, then it seems to have to be possible in that sense, in the, in the broad logical sense. And so I guess my question is if, and Alex, I think was granting that um, that wasn't the case. And so if that's not the case and then he's still questioning whether or not it is possible, then that tells me that you have to then be making a distinction between logical possibility and metaphysical possibility yeah, yeah because if there wasn't if there were, weren't wasn't that actual distinction between the two then you would have already concluded you wouldn't be even be thinking about whether or not it is possible does that make sense yeah for sure yeah i think for him there's just a matter of can we use the logical possibility um mm -hmm. in this context and so that's yeah. going to involve sort of slowing down the argument and painting the pathway carefully um, but I mean, I, I do that work in, in my book. I try to give this careful pathway from just logical possibility. And I'm glad you brought this up because I think a lot of people who know my work may not be familiar with this path from logical possibility um, because yeah. they, they might think, because some people know my work from possibility, my argument from causal possibility, um, but they might not be aware that I actually have a path from mere logical consistency. And so, you know, th that that's an available option yeah. to explore. Awesome. So we don't want to take up more of your time. I mean, yeah, there are no, kind of those questions. This could go on forever. And uh, maybe we could uh, <laughs> talk again sometime. But this was amazing. Uh, I mean, I was just thinking while you guys were talking about this, about like what we were saying earlier and how it just perfectly links in the sense that, I mean, yeah. I'm thinking that like possible worlds, if there are possible worlds in that sense, uh, and if not all possible worlds are actual, like if we're not modal realists of, of some sort, yeah. and a particular possible world is actual, then that again takes you to, well, this necessary foundation that grounds all these possibilities, if they are really possible, it's a metaphysical possibility. Well, that's 
that's power, right? And that, that's unlimited power in the sense that it's not arbitrarily limited. And then yeah. you've got choice because, well, why do you have the one possibility rather than the other? So there's so much to say there and it's, uh, it, yeah, it yeah. all links up in an amazing way. And something I love about your work, Josh, just, just real quick, so something I love about your work is that it links all these things together. As in you, mm -hmm. it's like no matter what I say right now about any argument for the existence of God or any of these like subcategories about these stuff we're talking about, it always links somehow to 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 like just <laughs> the broader picture of the of the theory and, and that's, that's just the really world you design bro that's it. Wow. exactly exactly <laughs> so yeah yusuf you can go thank ahead you. before we wrap yeah, it up yeah no, I, I was just gonna try and wrap it up now because uh, yeah, yeah go ahead go ahead yeah so thank you very much for joining us josh it's been uh, an absolute pleasure i hope because uh, there's already a touch on lots of other subjects so i'm hoping it would be great to have you on again uh, so we yeah, can you guys these. are just awesome. Thank you. I had so much fun. This was just the best. Thank you guys for having me with you. Appreciate. Well, thank it. you because we we, we do so like much. these conversations. They're uh, much juicier than some of the other ones we've had with certain people. But so I'm, I'm hoping we can sort of um, facilitate this kind of conversation a lot more often because uh, I, I do prefer these kind of talks. But yeah, so yeah. thank you for for joining us, and I, I'm very sorry we kept you a bit longer. Uh, than we originally agreed to, uh, so do forgive us for that. Um, but like I say, we'll, we'll be in touch. Um, I'll try and get uh, our brother Riyad, the admin brother, to reach out to you, so maybe we can send you a copy of the Quran, uh, God willing. And uh, yeah, and we'll try and leave this open for further discussion in the future. But other than that, thank you for joining us. Uh, I don't know if any of you want to have any closing statements, and Josh as well. You, of course, you can have your closing statement. Just, just more of the same. More thanks and appreciation, and hopefully we we, we talk again in the future. Yeah. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, thank you guys. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, definitely. Thanks a lot. All right, guys, I'm going to kick uh, the outro, and it's uh, about 10, 15 seconds or whatever. Josh, you can stick around or go. Um, but I want to thank everybody for watching and tuning in again. I, of course, want to thank Josh uh, for coming and spending his valuable time with us. And we really do appreciate it. And we look uh, forward to future discussions, uh, God willing. But until next time, guys, inshallah, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wow. Hayya